Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining. I'm your host, Seth Haskin. I started this podcast to dive deeper into the ways we know one another and God. The goal is to ask the question of why God loves or how God loves. I invite people from many walks of life to join me on this adventure. As we dive deeper into personifying God, we have to bring him into our three-dimensional world, but also understand that he lives in another state of being, the fourth dimension. I'd love to welcome and thank our guest today. He is a theologian giant, well, in my modern world, I guess, uh, with a BA from Bethel College, a Master of Arts in Theological Studies from Bethel Seminary, and a PhD from Marquette University. Our guest brings many books to show to the show today, writing and co-writing across the spectrum, understanding issues in evangelical theology, and the historical Jesus. He is a professor in biblical, uh, biblical and theological studies at Bethel University and a teaching pastor at Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome our guest today, Dr. Paul Eddy. Tell us about yourself. Hey, thank you, Seth, and it's an uh, honor to be here with you today. Yeah, well, you ca- you captured a lot of it. Uh, a lot of my time is spent uh, both teaching at Bethel and teaching at Woodland Hills Church. Uh, beyond that, I guess a uh, good, good chunk of the rest of my life is spent uh, researching and writing. You mentioned the fact that I tend to gravitate towards uh, writing uh, some books out and uh, I'm, for the last 10 years, my primary research focus has been on uh, issues related to theology and sexuality. And so I'm also, uh, as of the last couple of years, I'm also a research associate with a, um, an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And so that's kind of where my, my fun, uh, primary research writing interests lie these days. Um, live in White Bear Township, Minnesota, with my uh, lovely wife, Kelly. And our two sons, who happen to currently both be Bethel students right now. So it's uh, great to be with you. Well, thank you. Uh, by the way, Paul Eddy is meeting us via Zoom. So that's why the audio is a little different than uh, the previous podcast. But I am still excited to have him on today. All right. So I have a couple of questions to help uh, guide us on this journey that we're going to take. And the first one is, what does a theologian really do? Well, as I try to convince my, uh, my intro to Christian theology students, like it or not, we're all theologians. Uh, and so in, some, in, in one sense, uh, you, there's no human being who can stop something from happening in the synopsis of their brain when they hear the word God. And in that sense, we're all, like it or not, exploring what we think about God. Now, of course, at the professional level, a theologian is one who specializes in the study of God and concepts related to God. And so that's kind of a broad approach to uh, what we do. Perfect. Uh, what is the best thing about being a professional theologian, and what's some of the harder things about it? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think one of the best things is that, and, and interestingly, the, 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 my answer to the second part of your question, what's one of the more difficult things, is that this is kind of two sides to the same coin. The positive, one of the upsides is that 
you're constantly in the realm of engaging questions and um, challenges and uh, insights on the topic of God, which as a Christian helps, I think, as a theologian, staying engaged with the single most important topic in the world, namely our relationship with God. Now, what's interesting, at least my experience, is that the, the irony is that the, the greatest challenge is part of that, and namely that as a theologian, when this is sort of your work, sort of your, your job, um, I have found certain seasons in my life where I find that I'm spending so much time sort of thinking about God that the actual relating to God can sort of get put on, on, on the back burner. And so, oddly enough, simply because we're engaging God with our minds doesn't mean it's, it's, trans, it's trickling down to our hearts. And so keeping the head and the heart engaged together, I think, is a challenge uh, for the theologian who did, who's doing this professionally on, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, the relational part can kind of get put on the back burner as a yeah. professional theologian, thinking about all those big ideas that we have yep, to tackle exactly. every day. Yes. So um, you're not only a professor at Bethel, but you're also a pastor, as I mentioned. How does this influence your teaching and or how does this influence your preaching? Yeah, and actually it's been, I've been so thankful to have uh, one foot in the academic theological world and then one foot in the pastoral ecclesial church world. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that that uh, being a, a pastor theologian has both uh, helped bring to my, my teaching at the church a, um, a dimension of depth and, and I think uh, intellectual challenge and rigor that uh, at least a lot of my congregation members say they've appreciated. On the other hand, I think that uh, in my in my Bethel context, my my academic classes at liberal arts and, and institution, I've been able to bring that practical side uh, of theology to the academic conversation, and so it's really been a, a fruitful relationship. Uh, as, as I cross those, those boundaries between church and academy. Yeah, it's really nice to have a professor who doesn't o- isn't only involved in the academia world, but like also has, you know, real-life applications to things. You know, we always talk right. about that. When am I going to use this in math class? You know, <laughs> it's just like it's always nice to have those real-life applications. So I yeah. think it's great. I, I uh, listen to uh, Woodland Hills Church on uh, the podcast. I've been there a couple times in person, but like every time I go there, it's so nice because um, you get this deeper thought that a lot of churches don't have when they don't have like sitting academic theologians in their uh, presence. So it's very interesting, very interesting. So at Bethel, I actually had to read your book, um, I got to read your book, not had. I got to read your book across the spectrum um, for my theology class. Um, It was a very nice discussion of many differences the evangelical church faces. Um, Why did you write it, and what were the best and hardest parts about writing it? Ah. Well, Greg Boyd and I uh, co-wrote that book together. Um, The first edition came out in uh, 2002. And the reason we wrote the book, honestly, is, is because we've been looking for that book uh, for at least a decade. And, and 
found ourselves surprised that no one had done it yet. The reason we were looking for it is we wanted to have a book, a textbook that we could use in our intro, introduction to theology courses that would um, provide students with a first-person account of a number of different debated issues within theology. In other words, a book that doesn't argue for one particular view, but rather presents multiple views on each of the topics and then really challenges the students to decide where do you land personally on this topic. And so, um, yeah, we decided uh, to write it. And uh, actually, and interestingly enough, just today, I received an email from our publisher with the, man, the final manuscript for what will be our third edition of the book. And that'll be coming out next year. So it's been uh, pretty well received. We've had uh, folks from uh, around really the globe contact us and, and say that it's been a helpful tool in the classroom. And that's exactly what we hoped it would be. Uh, in terms of um, the, the challenge to writing that book, I think the greatest challenge was that unless we could argue every view as strongly as the view next to it that we happen to disagree with, mm -hmm. the book wouldn't work. If, if we were biased in the book, it would be a complete disaster. And so it really challenged Greg and I to be able to, to articulate and argue the views we don't agree with just as strongly as the views we did agree with. And um, I'm happy to say that the, uh, the reviews that have come out in the book uh, have said that we did a pretty decent job of, of being fair. And that was the greatest uh, challenge. And I'm, I'm uh, thankful that we're able to pull that up. Yeah. It's so interesting, like, when I was reading the book, like, it was hard to tell what the author was, like, favoring. So you did a very good job. It was just oh, like... thank you. Thank it you. It was just like, they could favor this, and then you go on to the next topic, and you're like, wait a minute, they could actually <laughs> favor this. And it was just like a lot of being, in other terms, you know, the devil's advocate or a lawyer for that, you know, yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Um, it's just like, you got to have those parts in your life so that you can understand every side or every thought process of something so complex as just Jesus on earth or the Trinity or anything like that, where it becomes like, well, it seems so simple, but actually there are many different thought processes to go about it. Yeah. And to your point there, I've always had this conviction as a theologian that I have no right to decide that someone else's view is wrong until I'm able to articulate and defend their view just as accurately as they do. And if I can't do that, then in fact, I'm not really uh, testing their view out. I'm testing out a caricature mm -hmm. of their view that I've just created because it looks a little sillier or a little more simplistic than mine. And then I, I knock it down and act as though I've like done something significant. And so I think uh, it was a good test for Greg and I. Could we could we argue those views just as, as forcefully as one, even though we happen to disagree with them, but nonetheless give them a fair voice, and uh, that was our goal. It's so hard an argument to do that. Like you said, not building a character or as well-known in you know uh, writing a straw man argument straw man, yes. where you yes. be like, oh, it's this, you're saying this, and it's just like, no, it's actually this, and like finding that other side. I think it's so important, not only in like theology, but everyday life, making sure that when we're talking to each other, we're not building these straw man arguments against each other. Yes. And I'm yes. sure you had, 
encountered many a fallacies um, writing this book that you didn't necessarily realize that when you were doing it, or you did, and you were very careful not to go into those fallacies. Absolutely. It's very good. It's interesting. We actually had one one, uh, reviewer who knew where Greg and I stood on certain issues, and he knew he disagreed with us. And he said about those issues, he said, he goes, I, I'm sort of surprised that the level at which they were able to argue my view that they don't agree with me. <laughs> and so that was a compliment uh, that, that he thought we at least treated his view just as fairly as if he was arguing. And, um, and yet we didn't agree with him. And so that, that's, part of the, that's part of what it takes for brothers and sisters in Christ, I think, to come together and, and really listen to each other, learn from each other, share with each other, and then think together in a, in a Jesus-like way. So. Definitely, definitely. The other book, The Historical Jesus, like I can definitely see that in your um, all your preaching and all your teaching that you do is just like we're, we're taking the context in which the Bible was in. Can you explain mm-hmm. kind of what you do with Historical Jesus and how you use context to um, evaluate Scripture? Yeah. So actually... Um, done a couple of books around historical Jesus. One's called The Historical Jesus, Five Views, mm-hmm. in which we invited five different, uh, five scholars with very different views on who Jesus was historically to, to engage together. Uh, but then Greg Boyd and I also wrote a book called The Jesus Legend, in which we offered our own perspective on whether the Gospels can be trusted on their presentation of mm-hmm. and defended that. And so I would say that to your point about the importance of historical context, um, you know, someone once said that a text without a context is a pretext. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, I always try to remember that little mantra to myself, because every time we open scripture and quote a verse or even a, a longer passage, but forget, if, if we forget, that that comes out of an entire historical cultural milieu that makes sense out of those words in that context. Well, if we don't remember that, what we do is we pull that passage out of its original context, and we naturally, of course, place it right into ours, as though it was said in our time, in our yep. place, in our English language. And that's the easiest way to misread or read into a text um, ideas that were never intended to be there. Uh, and that's, that's just the challenge. And so historical context, I believe, is just an absolutely essential first step in order not to be misunderstanding Scripture on on a regular basis. Could you give us a little example of this? Because I know um, uh, we're hearing it a lot more, historical context becoming more and more important in the Church, which I think is very important. But um, a lot of it is focusing on um, Jesus' life specifically in the historical context. Could you give us an example such as, like, turn, turn the other cheek? Or something like that. Well, but to take you know, turn the other cheek idea, which of course comes comes out of a really crucial uh, section uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. really uh, end of Matthew chapter five, and Jesus in that that dialogue there is is really the the, the immediate section is an, as a section on an enemy love, mm-hmm. this radical idea that we are called to agape love our enemies. And um, I think what we often forget that is that in Jesus' context, 
when he's giving this sermon as he's traveling uh, around the towns of Nazareth and, and uh, Galilee, um, probably the foremost, um, the first thought that would come into a first century Galilean Jew's mind when you said enemy is probably the Roman soldiers were occupying your nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the people of God. You're supposed to be have a, a sovereign God. You believe in a sovereign God who is supposed to secure a sovereign Jewish-run nation for his people, but Rome has taken it over. And these Romans, I mean, we talk about terrorism here in our modern world. I'll tell you, man, the Romans, they knew terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they occupied nations with terror, and one of their main terror attacks, of course, was crucifixion. Mm-hmm. It was a political uh, capital punishment. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, he's, he's talking about the terrorists. And um, I find it interesting how a lot of Christians in our context today in America, how we talk about terrorists, as opposed to how Jesus both talked about and even related to his Roman terrorists. Mm-hmm. There was a day when he held up a Roman centurion, one of the enemy, occupying enemies, as an example of faith to, his, to the Jewish people. I mean, that'd be like, you know, one of our preachers holding up an Al-Qaeda representative as a representative of real faith to us Christians. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't go over you. No, it would not. So um, that, that's just one of the many ways in which historical context can, can readjust some of our readings of Scripture and cause us to go, what is Jesus? doing. Um, I'll simply add to that to say this. Every one of Jesus' parables uh, is meant to take your worldview and flip it upside down. You're left going, huh? And most of the parables don't do that to us because we know the punchline. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to sort of reimagine ourselves as first century Jewish hearers and how that parable, for example, the Good Samaritan, would flip our worldview upside down when you remember that Samaritans were, according to Jews, half-breed dogs mm-hmm. who were not worthy of even stepping into their territory with the, the, the dirtier feet with their soil of their land. And here's Jesus holding up a Samaritan as the person who helped this. So once again, Jesus is constantly uh, challenging us to rethink the kingdom in very subversive ways. Mm-hmm, definitely. And like the word Samaritan now actually means a good hearted person. Exactly. And it's just like exactly. you hear a good Samaritan. They were a Samaritan to their community. And yes. it's just like, like totally that, that, uh, those words that Jesus used to, uh, back then completely different today. So I feel like, Absolutely. you know, using that historical context is so important or like relating it to modern day ideas of like terrorism or like, the Samaritans could be, you know, these people over here that we don't agree with and we think they're lower than us and very important. So yeah. I love it. Oh, I love theology and it's so so important, especially in historical context. So with your background in theology and biblical studies, historical context, all of that, um, let's dig into relationships. We kind of talked about it a little bit when we came to like Jesus using relationships of the present day to like get his like radical love across yes. to um, his audience. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word relationship and how does that interpretation interact with your daily P 
people? Like, how do you interact with other oh, people? That's a great question, Seth. And, you know, let's, you know, coming right off the heels of a little conversation here on historical context, right? Mm-hmm. When I hear relationship, I try to remember that I want to hear that word in the context. Since, since Jesus is yep. our Lord and teacher, I want to take it back to the context Jesus would have assumed we are adopting when he talks about relationships. And let's be honest, that's a very different context than our modern or really postmodern radical individualistic context that we think about relationships in today. And so in Jesus's context, there wasn't a, 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 a individualism was not the thing. Mm-hmm. Rather, there was a much stronger sense of what I'll call corporate solidarity and it's this idea that people are embedded in corporate or communal relationships for their very identity Mm -hmm. Uh, you could not be a person in the ancient world who was sort of this free-floating atom of a person who defines yourself like we love to do today Mm -hmm. you found your very significance worth and identity within your community. And I think Jesus agrees with that. It's just that Jesus is saying, let's make sure you're getting your significance, value, and worth from the right community, Mm -hmm. namely the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I think about relationships in the, the thought world of Jesus, I think not of well, let, let me say how I think we use the word today, and then I'll contrast yep. how I think Jesus used it. I think when we use the word relationship today in our postmodern Western individualist context, all we mean by relationship usually is it's, it's a word we use to talk about how two individuals mm-hmm. might intersect in their lives. But we don't really think of relationship as a thing, a substantial reality. We use it as sort of a nominal uh, locution, a word, to simply describe how two individuals might intersect mm-hmm. or might not. But I think the ancient world, and therefore Jesus' world, actually believed that relationships were real things. That's why, for example, um, the entire scriptural narrative, including Jesus, is concerned that we both love people, but also that we love and protect relationships Mm -hmm. because they're actual spiritual realities that God brings into existence and nurtures and loves and that we in the modern West don't see them that way usually. And so we we tend to treat relationships rather shallowly and cheaply. Mm -hmm. Um, That's to answer your question, the gist of it for me is I try to see relationships as living entities that have their own spiritual reality to them that we are called to live within and protect and um, and love, to actually love the relationships God's given us to be. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, my previous guest, uh, Dr. Christine Osgood, <clears throat> She said something similar as like um, there's almost a third thing when people are in relationship. And so I think it's so interesting to hear these all these different views. Are we're coming back to like 
yeah, there's relationship, but there's also like relationship. It's just like we can use it as a noun or we can use it as a verb. And it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So um, could you describe some relationships you have um are they important to you or do you categorize relationships or just talk about some relationships? Okay. Um, so a lot of my work, my, my own personal work on relationships mm-hmm. has emerged out of the category of covenant relationships. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's, that's going to definitely, um, uh, put a particular uh, trajectory of thought on how I talk about relationships. Um, so let me, let me give you my quick definition of covenant and then explain mm-hmm. how it helps me categorize relationships. Um, so I define covenant, a, a covenant relationship. And I, I realized, when, I should say this, when I, when I talk about covenant, the, the biblical terms for covenant, Berit uh, in the Hebrew and Diatheke in, in the uh, Greek of the New Testament, they, they have rather wide semantic ranges. That they, for example, I think the notion of Berit uh, in, in Hebrew can cover everything from what I would specifically call a covenant relationship, but also would cover some things that you and I might call more contractual relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I talk about covenant, I want to suggest that what I mean is what God's real heart behind his use of covenant is mm-hmm. for. Uh, so that being said, the, the specific sort of the center of God's heart for covenant relationship, I think what that is, is that it's a committed, agape-centered relationship that takes non-family people, in other words, they're not related to each other, but through the gift of covenant, they become family. Literally, it creates kinship or family relationship. And so um, I think there's only two ways that human beings ever can become family, blood and covenant, mm-hmm. or in other words, birth and promise. And uh, interestingly, uh, in the, the paradigm of, say, marriage, where, where two people who aren't related mm-hmm. become related through covenant, mm-hmm. That covenant comes first before the birth of the child comes, which is second. In other words, mm-hmm. covenant precedes blood in terms of how this happens chronologically. I also happen to think that covenant is superior, in a sense, the blood relationship for this reason. Spiritual covenant relationships of brothers and sisters in the covenant of Christ last eternally, mm. where our blood relationships, I think, with each other only last as long as human life on earth lasts. Mm. So I think, this is why I think covenant is so at the heart of God. It creates God's family through the new covenant of Jesus, and it lasts literally forever, the eternal relationship. So uh, family is my first major category of relationship, two types, biological family and covenantal family. And then I think all the other relationships outside of covenant would then be different forms of relationships that are less formally defined than family. Mm. So we could say, uh, to take friendship, for example, 
in certain cultures, friendship is very clearly defined, particularly in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. In our culture, I think it's one of the most informal relationships we mm-hmm. have today, meaning you could say so-and-so is my friend and mean by that they're your best friend for life, or you could mean it's an acquaintance I met yesterday at work yep. and we're friends. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of elasticity to it, which means it's got a lot of confusion around it, and not a lot of people are even clear what exactly a friend is anymore. Yep. And so that's part of the challenge is how do we define relationships clearly enough so we actually know what we're doing when we say so-and-so is my friend or what have you. Yeah. Oh, goodness, it's so good. I love how you said um, friend is such a elastic word. We use it so often, and that's why I asked the question, how do you categorize your relationships? Because I feel like friend is so loosey-goosey sometimes. You have, yeah. oh, they're a friend. Oh, well, how do you know them? Well, I know them through choir. Do you do this? And it's just like, no, we're, we're just friends through choir, or we're friends through yeah. work, or we're friends through church. And it's just like totally different levels. And so yeah. sometimes people try to come up with like, oh, we're blood brothers, we're covenant brothers, like we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think it's so interesting that family just becomes a reoccurring theme every time we yeah. talk about relationships. And I think it's such a gift that God gave us family and relationships yeah. in general, but especially family relationships, reoccurring theme. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting point there, Seth. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that when, when friends you just sort of naturally start hanging out and talking, all of a sudden they start calling each other bro, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's a family term, mm-hmm. a brother. And so there's something I think innately wired in us humans that we know that family is this special relationship and we'll even use it of people who aren't family yep. to let them know that they mean a lot to us. Yep. Uh, the beautiful thing about covenant is it can actually create family. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's the covenant of marriage, the covenant of adoption, precisely making a child who's not yours into your child. Yep. And even the covenant of covenant friendship, where you literally do covenant with a friend and you become actual kin now. That We don't do that often in our culture, but David and Jonathan did. Ruth and Naomi did. Um, people through history have in the Christian church have actually taken certain friendships and said, we feel we're called to actually be family and strengthen our friendship at that level. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that uh, covenant actually allows us to do. Yeah, definitely. And it's so like we sometimes I know um, I had a second mother is what I called her. Uh, She was my mother, um, not by blood, but because we were so close, you know, that relationship was just something other than just, oh, she's a family friend, you know, she was a second mother. And it was just like so heartbreaking. It was almost like losing my own mother because we recently lost her over COVID. It wasn't from COVID. It was from other things, but it was just like so hard. Like, I'm like, is this what it's going to be like to lose my mother? If this is this hard and she's not even like been here to raise me as long as my mother has, how hard will it be to lose someone like my mother or someone like my father? Because her husband was like a second father to us. And when he died shortly after, which I will call from like heartbreak, because there's an actual term called tuxubo. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, I think it's a Chinese or Japanese word to describe a fishing pot. And it describes like how the heart can become during like heartbreak when you lose someone you love 
so much. And I love how that it's in medical books now, Tuxubo. And it's just like this heartbreak and then you die. Um, But like when we lost him, I was like, oh my goodness, is this like, this is hard. How hard is it actually going to be to someone that you're so involved with throughout your entire life? So I think it's so important to understand covenant relationships, to also appreciate the relationships that we sometimes take for granted, that is blood relationships. So yeah. you you started talking about covenant relationships, which is leading me to my next questions, <laughs> is that you specialize in covenant relationships. You teach, you preach, um, you have s- dedicated such a big portion of your uh, teaching um, and theology to covenant relationships, therefore of God, the church, culture in general. Um, it, it always intrigues me when you talk about them. So you already kind of touched on this topic, but for people who don't necessarily understand the importance of covenant relationships, why covenant relationships? Why are they important to understand? Okay. Well, I'll share a little bit about my own story with covenant to, to get at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in the church. Uh, baptized at age 12. I really think that was a, I remember that was a meaningful time, mm-hmm. but within a year or two after that, I started a long, slow walk away from God. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until my junior year at Bethel that some things happened with uh, God working through them to draw me back to him. And so I was 20, 20, 21 when that happened. Um, and yet when I came back to the Lord, uh, Let's put it this way. I, I continued to struggle. In fact, for five more years, I really continued to struggle with really understanding or making sense out of my relationship with God in a way that seemed to match the message of agape love that Jesus clearly teaches in the New Testament. I could read the words of Jesus. I could even, by that time, I was actually... Uh, I graduated from from Bethel with a Bible degree, and I was a single uh, pastor at a church. So I was giving messages on the love of God, but I was not experiencing personally the mm-hmm. love of God. And so I actually stepped out of ministry for a half a year when I was 26, went down to a discipleship school just to get kind of some, some me and God time and, mm-hmm. and some encouragement. And while I was down there, I happened to hear a sermon in this little church in the middle of nowhere, Texas, by a guy on covenant. And I had never, in 26 years of being around the church, ever heard a, a message on covenant relationship. And this was no longer than a 40-minute sermon. And I remember sitting in the pew after the sermon, unable to leave. I, I, it's just like within 40 minutes, a, a, a key had unlocked so much of the sort of information I had in my head and ideas, but never had it been pulled together and put into a systematic explanation of how God's love actually works in our life. Covenant did that for me. And so I would say the first major moment for me was covenant helped me understand or give me a framework for understanding my relationship with God and his love for me. Mm-hmm. And it was only after really spending time working to me and Jesus in covenant that I then began to realize, well, this must also have implications for 
for marriage. If I, two years later, I got married. Mm -hmm. It was a major reframe for what I thought marriage was. Um, and then from there, church covenant and uh, adoption and friendship and all these things that uh, have become part of a class I teach at Bethel now called Covenant Relationships. But it all started with that one sermon uh, back in 1985. And in some ways, I'm still trying to understand that sermon and its implications some 30 years later. Yeah, definitely. So I remember you talking about contractual relationships and covenant relationships. How yeah. would you divide those so that people understand that the way people view marriage today is more contractual than covenantial? And like, how can we view it as covenantial? Yeah, really important question, particularly given that um, a number of historians of marriage, people who really try to track the history of marriage, have argued that roughly since the 1960s and the sexual revolution, a new model of marriage that has really sort of developed, and, and some call it the contractual model, others call it the consumer model mm. of marriage. Um, and so to, to kind of secure the two ideas of covenant versus contract, the way I use those terms in contrast is this, that there's a lot of things that covenant and contract happen to have in common. Mm -hmm. That's why they're so easy to confuse. Uh, both covenants and contracts have things like parties, like those two or more parties, depending on the type of covenant or contract. There's terms in both that parties agree to. There's consequences for keeping or breaking the covenant or contract. Um, there's usually witnesses, both the covenants and the contracts. So there's all these, what you might call the the external wrapping, are very similar. Mm -hmm. I would say what the significant difference is is the heart attitude behind the two things. And the simplest way I can put it is that in covenant, the heart attitude is supposed to be one of other-oriented agape love, whereas in contract. It tends to be self-oriented. Uh, how do I protect my own interests? Mm -hmm. And because it's really a heart issue, it's easy to enter what should be a covenant, but to make it into a contract. Mm. And I think that's what we often see happening in marriages today. We all sort of know they're supposed to be covenant, not contract. And yet many, many marriages function as contracts mm -hmm. because the parties go into them assuming that the purpose of the marriage is to fulfill them and make them happy. Mm. Now, I'm, I, you know, most people say, well, yeah, and I hope my partner gets fulfilled and happy too, but come on, when push comes to shove, <laughs> we, we got to look out for number one, right? Yeah. Number one is not the other person. It's just, you know, yeah, and this it's... is just the nature of Western individualism and hedonism that mm -hmm. we live in today. Yep. And so that's the challenge is how do we actually preserve covenant in a covenantal fashion and not turn it into a self-serving contract? Yep. Um, for those out there who don't know what hedonism is, um, it's another term for like debauchery or basically indulging in life's pleasures, um, but necessarily not like thinking about the consequences. Um, yeah. 
So I love how you said how people go into certain relationships as contractual and how that can actually change the way they view the relationships themselves. And I think it's so interesting, like you said, during the sexual revolution of the 60s, how it changed to contractual a lot of times, give and take, and like how the high divorce rates and everything just like, I mean, there are other factors, but like this is definitely one of the main factors of like looking at marriage and like seeing um, if this and this and this doesn't happen, then I can, you know, walk out of this. There isn't like this bigger impact because it always has been self-serving to me. But if you enter a marriage or a relationship in a covenant way, you can walk out of that, but it is a so much harder because you actually are wanting to see that relationship a different way than self-serving. And I think it's so important in society if we start viewing our relationships as covenant relationships and not contractual relationships, how that can change not just like the family unit, but also like the family unit changing politics, changing national laws, changing like civil rights and just like how that just builds up from such a small level. And it's so, so important, I think, for everyone to understand the importance of covenant versus contractual, which, you know, which is why I asked the question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So um, do you think with what we have talked about with covenant relationships and contractual relationships, the importance of understanding covenant relationships in an earthly standpoint, do you think that is just as important so that we can understand our covenant relationship with God? And how does that influence our understanding of covenant relationship with God? Yeah. Uh, interesting question because um, given the fact that we are embodied, finite human beings who are always already enculturated, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if I'm going to understand God, uh, Paul Eddy, if Paul Eddy is going to understand God, well, Paul Eddy grew up in uh, 20th, 21st century North America, English-speaking context. In other words, there's these cultural aspects about me that God will have to accommodate to mm -hmm. if I'm going to understand him. And I, uh, this, this isn't like a problem for God. He created it this way. Mm -hmm. But what I think what this lets us know is that God is, well, he's omniscient. That really helps, right? <laughs> he knows everything. And so he knows all of our cultures better than we do. And he knows the mechanisms by which he can come to us in whatever culture he finds us in and then use certain elements of our experience in order to give us analogies by which to understand him and our relationship with him. And I think what God did way back in, in, in biblical times and probably before even, even Mosaic times is um, he found this concept of covenant, which goes way back in history. And he began to use the idea of covenants that were being produced, both marital covenants, but also national covenants. Mm -hmm. What we call peace treaties today mm -hmm. are what's left over from ancient national covenants with people trying to forge peace. So he took these cultural ideas and he used them, shaped them in order to help us understand the kind of love he has for us and the kind of relationship he wants to share with us. 
So interestingly, across all the New Testament, one of the common themes God uses is that God is a groom and his people are his bride. Mm -hmm. And he uses, for example, in Isaiah 31, uh, a phrase there which says, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. And there's some scholars who've argued that what God is, God's language there is playing off of ancient marital vows where the husband would say, I will be your husband and you shall be my wife. Mm -hmm. God's taking that language and using it for him and his people now. And this goes right through the Old Testament prophets, right to Jesus, where Jesus says uh, one day in, when the Pharisees are asking Jesus, why don't you fast like we fast, you and your disciples? And Jesus says, well, when the groom is with them, they don't fast. But when the groom goes away, they will fast. He uses bridal language to explain why when he's present on earth, there's a lot of feasting. So, I mean, Jesus could not stop eating and drinking, right? Mm -hmm. It's a miracle how he kept that weight off. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. But he says at one point, I know they call me a drunkard and a glutton. That's not what's going on. What's going on was he was enacting betrothal ceremonies Mm. all throughout his ministry. One big betrothal ceremony. Mm -hmm. But then the last night, like hours before he goes to the cross, he says in John 14 to his disciples, I've got to go now and prepare a place for you. Well, that's the language of a groom at the end of the betrothal ceremony mm-hmm. when he's going to build the house yep. for the wife. Yep. So this, this whole bridal theme is all through Jesus' ministry. We just miss it often because we're not familiar with yep. the Jewish marriage culture. But yeah, that's such a... a I think covenant becomes the, one of the dominant ideas Jesus takes or that God takes from the ancient culture and weaves into his relationship with us so we can understand it and participate. Definitely. I'm going to plug your church, Woodland Hills. Uh, podcast is great. They talk about this in many of their series. Um, they just finished up a series where they were talking about um, covenant relationships and just like friendships and a whole bunch of different types of relationships, and it's so good. Paul Eddy talks and Greg Boyd talks and all of their staff talks. Um, um, they are they are doing God's work for sure in preaching and teaching people about this Jewish culture, about marriage and how Jesus is using it in his word and how it's so important to understand that when it comes to this bridal talk, this marriage talk with Jesus. Oh, it's so good. I love it so much. Um, Thanks for that shout out there. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can find them on uh, uh, what, the podcast app on Apple. I don't know what it's called. Um, you're on Spotify, right? Are you on Spotify? You know, I'm not a podcast guy. Personally, <laughs> I'm still stuck back in the 20th century somewhere, but I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you can find it on their website. Um, I don't know. I don't have the URL right in front of me because I wasn't. WHchurch.org. There you go. WHchurch.org. Um, or you can just look them up. Um, Woodland Hills, St. Paul, Minnesota, and you can find their website. So anyway. They always talk about this stuff, and I eat it up. Eat it up every time. I feast with uh, Jesus when uh, we are present with him. So it's so good. Um, We already talked about a whole lot of covenant relationships and how we can use them in a cultural setting to understand our covenant relationship with God. Um, God is calling us to a covenant relationship with him. How can we view his call 
with what we understand about covenant relationships in general, how can we view his call and like stand up to the call and how does that look like in everyday life? Mm-hmm. Well, to use covenant language, what you're really asking is how do we enter mm-hmm. into that new covenant that Jesus Christ has prepared for us? And I'll, I'll fall back really to the kind of both imagery and language Jesus uses by comparing it to to a marriage covenant. Um, it seems to me that what Jesus does is he comes as the divine groom. Some of the language he uses when he's using his bridal language is he's drawing from the Old Testament text that talked about God as the groom. And Jesus now applies it to himself. I actually think one of the strongest cases to defend the claim that Jesus believed he really was Yahweh embodied is that Jesus steps into the role of the divine groom that in the Old Testament was always Yahweh himself. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus comes and starts speaking and acting as if Yahweh is here to get his bride, take his bride. And so I think what we can imagine is that when Jesus came the first time, he came proposing, proposing marriage to, to a bride. And I think in my theology, that proposal is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Jesus invites everybody into this new, beautiful marital covenant with the triune God. Now, the important question, you know how marriage works. When when a groom proposes, there's not going to be a marriage unless a bride accepts the proposal. So I think the really important question for us personally is, have we accepted the marriage proposal of Jesus? And if so, how do we do that? How do we know whether we've accepted it? In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says that, uh, and I think what's said in these these two verses is something Jesus said everywhere he went, wherever he preached. And it's this, that he comes into a town and says, hey folks, the kingdom of God is in your midst here. In other words, the king is here. I'm proposing. You want to respond? Here's what you got to do. Repent and exercise So faith and repentance becomes the way in which we say yes to the proposal of marriage to Jesus. Now, what's faith and repentance? I think they're both covenant terms, and we often misconstrue them because we don't put them in covenantal Mm -hmm. context. I think faith simply means covenantal trust, trusting your partner and their promises and love for you. So Jesus is asking us to trust that he, in fact, loves us the way he says he does Repentance simply is a a fancy religious term for turning from one direction in your life to the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, what's the turning? Well, when you think of it maritally, uh, when I got married to my wife, Kelly, in 1988, we both, on the day of our marriage, turned from being single to being married. And if we didn't make that turn literally in our heads and our lives, like you can say you'll be married. But I know a lot of people, some of my friends even, who when they said I do on their wedding day, I don't think in their lifestyle or their heads actually turned from singles. I think they wanted the same fun and friends of singleness and just wanted to add a spouse rather than Mm. really turning to being married. And some of those marriages are no longer marriages today. Uh, so this becomes a real important question. Do we turn to 
toward their covenant partner and actually move into a new relationship that redefines who we are. It doesn't extinguish us. It doesn't make you know us go away in the relationship simply. Be, but it does redefine our identity in terms of this person. And there are things that will have to be given up in order to love well now in this particular relationship. Same with Jesus. When I turn to Jesus, I'm turning to Jesus, but that means I got to turn away from the other lovers and idols that were in my life that kept me from being a good spouse to Jesus. Mm. And so really repentance and faith just means turning and trusting. And once someone does that, they are now part of the bride of Christ. They've said yes to the new covenant of Jesus. Wow. I love how you say it's just turning from one thing to another. And you used an example of marriages where it's like, oh, we think it's singleness with a spouse attached to that. And that's not what covenant is at all. Um, It's so, so interesting to just always hear a different way of viewing our relationship with God from different perspectives and different relationships that we have on earth. And our call is to be in a covenant relationship with God. And the marriage language makes it very clear on kind of what we are doing. And like you said, the whole I do thing, it's more of a we do. We become this covenant together. We are working together. And it's so like this idea of one flesh, you know, this we become, I'm turning away and we are looking for each other. And I feel like people always forget that um, we also have to be looking. They always yeah. say God is looking for us and he's searching for us and blah, 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 blah. But it's always we also have to search for God. And that spousal imagery of how we view that relationship is so important, I think, to understand. Um, Absolutely. I just have a couple more questions to you. You're getting to the end of our time here is – we always see this covenant relationship and we always prescribe it to God, but I mean, to Jesus, um, of course, in the uh, New Testament, but you always are mentioning the Old Testament too. And I think one book specifically comes to mind when we're talking about marriage covenant um, imagery, and it's the prophet of Hosea. Yeah. I think it's so interesting to look at the covenant imagery of marriage that Jesus talks about and the covenant imagery that God is talking about through Hosea and how it's the bridegroom effect. And sometimes when we, when we, he uses Hosea to make a covenant with an earthly relationship, a woman who is a prostitute, um, which is very interesting. And we could talk about, you know, theological themes there, but, uh, <laughs> but um, he get, enters a covenant relationship with this woman. And as the relationship progresses, she is immoral and um, cheats on Hosea, who marries him. But he doesn't view that as a contractual thing and like, oh, I can divorce her now. Um, but he views it as a covenant and he goes out to get her. Yeah. And he carries her in his arms even after she has turned away. I, I keep wanting to say we because I always view... Um, this woman that he marries as the body of Christ and Hosea as the God figure. And I think it's a very powerful way to read the book, which is the way it was meant to be read. But like we turned away from him in that covenant. We turned. But at the same time, he comes back and we return 
I think it's so like that word return. We turn and then we return so that we yeah. can get centered back into that covenant relationship. And he does it many, many times in the book of Hosea. And I think if you're looking for um, any um, connectivity from Old Testament to New Testament, if you're having troubles there, I think the book of Hosea is a great place to start. Um, but Genesis starts with it. So, you know. <laughs> um, so my last question for you is if there's one thing that has helped you view your relationship with God in a more meaningful way, in a way that helps you understand your relationship with God per se, what is it and how can that help us view our relationship with God? Okay. Well, interesting, Seth, is my answer to that, my foremost answer, directly connects to what you just shared. Uh, 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 the, the theme that comes out of Hosea, and actually we find it just as well in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. And it's this theme that when God finds his people bride, he finds someone he loves and desperately seeks, but inevitably his people become adulterous towards him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's, the, that's the message of the divine groom bride theme in the Old Testament is mm-hmm. God's bride always goes away and God has to pursue her. And yet he does pursue her and he, he woos her back. Uh, and that's to your point. That's covenant love, not contractual self-protection. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, that same concern applies to the New Testament. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11, the opening verses, Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm concerned for you, lest you be led astray from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, because I betrothed you to one husband. And so Paul's, I think, using that Hosea, mm-hmm. Jeremiah, uh, and that background there to say to the Corinthians, look, just because Jesus has come doesn't mean you can't walk away too. You, you still have to be in this. Like you said, Seth, we have to pursue God in the way like he has to pursue us. The only difference is we, we never do that perfectly while God mm-hmm. always does it mm-hmm. perfectly. And so to bring this full circle, I think the single most important thing to realize is that to talk about that turn and trust again, that repentance and faith, it's just like our human, a human marriage. Uh, when Kelly and I turned and trusted on December 10th, 1988, we were promising to agape love each other till death do us part. That's a huge promise. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, having now been, it'll be 33 years here coming up. In, in- Congratulations few weeks. Thank you. Um, we're still married, but I'll be honest. I'll confess. I have not perfectly loved Kelly. Mm, In fact, mm-hmm. probably within, before the honeymoon ended, I'd probably done something that wasn't perfectly agape for her. Mm-hmm. She had to learn to forgive me, and I had to learn to return mm-hmm. back to her. And that just becomes a way of life. So the good news then for our relationship with God is that unlike a human marriage, God never turns away from mm. us. He's always turned mm-hmm. towards us. But never is there a day where he says to us, that's it. You've turned away too much. I'm done with you. It's not seven times, but 70 times seven, which, remember, isn't doesn't mean, well, on the 400, whatever, <laughs> he says, no, 
seven times seven was the perfect number times the perfect number. In other words, this goes on forever. God, yeah. as long as we're in the relationship, as long as we don't say, I'm done, we can have as many times of failure and turning back to God, and there's nothing but grace and love and forgiveness. And why this is so important is because until I was 26, I knew the gospel, I knew about salvation, but I had this deep sense in my spirit that my salvation was always hanging by a thread, that um, there was always dependent on how well I did that day. Mm -hmm. I knew that, I, like I knew that wasn't true, but it felt like that. Yep. What covenant has given me is to understand God's heart towards me as a spouse. And now I can see that through my lens of a spouse. Well, being a spouse means learning through failure. That's how we love, is we learn to love together through the times we don't love well. Mm -hmm. And we turn back, and we forgive, and we grow. And God does that with me, and he never says enough is enough. It's always, I'm always that lost sheep that he's still looking for. I'm always that that coin that, that, he, 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 that, that was misplaced, but God unrelentingly looks for until he finds. And honestly, that's given me a sense of God's love and our the tenacity and resilience of our commitment that I never had before I understood covenant relations. Mm -hmm. And I think that is uh, a major takeaway for all of us who are in covenant with Jesus. Yeah. It's a good way to end, the, <laughs> end it tonight. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We could talk for hours, I'm sure, about more oh, and more things because covenant is just everywhere and it's so important to understand. So yeah. I would just like to thank you again for joining me, um, even if it is through Zoom. Um, I really enjoy just talking about love, basically, but especially yeah. like the way in which God loves and why he loves. And I can't wait to get into the more and more of the why, because once you start, you just keep going. There's never an end. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you understand. Oh, my goodness. So thank you again. Um, and thank you all for listening. Have a great night.